want you to think about what you just saw. Isn't that something? I mean, that, you, did you see yourself like that first guy? Okay, you're, am I the only one? My kid's kind of like, that's you, Dad, or something like that. They're like, what? No, okay. You guys see yourself that? I mean, we're, we're like that, right? People are impeding our progress as we're making our way through life. They're, they're in the way, and like, ah. Oh. And yet, we're trying to figure out, like, how is it that we're going to really love people? You know, in Romans chapter 12, we've been making our way through Romans chapter 12. We came to verse 9. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, love people sincerely. And like, how in the world do you do that? I mean, it isn't as easy as just slipping on a pair of spectacles and all of a sudden you see people for what's really going on in their heart. Does it work that way? No. How do you do this? What is the key to really loving people well? Well, I'm not the only one that really wants to know this. I think all of us, if we're honest and we see God's working in our heart, we want to come to a place where we're really actually loving people well. How do you do that? Let me give it to you in one word. Humility. You and I need humility. We need a freedom from pride. We need dependence upon God. And we need to have a genuine concern for others. You see, humility is the key that really allows us to love people like Christ. And if you remember, as we've been talking about this, in Romans 12, 9, he says, I want you to love without hypocrisy. If you want to see love and humility flowing from your life, use this acronym. S for C is to realize that Love like this is sourced in our relationship with God. And E is to experience. God actually wants us to experience this kind of love in our personal lives. That means that instead of just God God bypassing our lives, that we just become conduits where we just allow the love to flow, but we don't really experience this kind of love or humility, that's not what God is desiring. He wants genuine authenticity. And that means that we're going to reconcile and re- work through the issues of our heart. We're going to say, God, how come I don't feel this way? And what's going on? And why am I so short-tempered? And what's going on with this bitterness that I see creeping up? See, God wants us to be real. So it's sourced in our relationship with God and His love. It is to be experienced in our lives personally. But then once we experience, then with genuineness, that we can express it. We can express this kind of love and humility into the lives of others. So what does this kind of love look like? Well, look at verse 9. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Verse 10. Oh, that's great. Got it? We can do that. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, and we're like, that's it. That is what love looks like. And you know what? Everybody is like, that's good. you know, and I aspire to those things. I, I, Well, that would feel really good if I could continue to see Christ doing this in my life. But when you hit verse 14, it's like it stops us dead in the tracks. We are commanded to do something that is counterintuitive, and counter-cultural. We are called to love the hostile. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
How's that working for you? Ooh, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. Blessing those who persecute us. The word bless, we get our English word eulogy from that. It has the idea of speaking well. So you, have, you find things to speak well of. You perhaps pray for. You find something good about an individual. You bless them. And notice what we're to do. We are to bless those who are actually persecuting us for our faith. And he says, bless, to stress it, because like we're not going to be able to handle it the first time. Bless and do not curse. To curse someone doesn't mean merely like to insult them, but it has the idea that you are wishing that God would consign an individual to unmitigated wrath, that they would be experiencing the eternal punishment of hell. To curse someone is to say that I hope this happens to you, oftentimes vindictively. And yet... Are we in a position to be expressing we want someone to experience God's eternal damnation? Isn't it interesting how fast words come out of our mouths? It's like before they even engaged our head. And Jesus said, Luke 645, man speaks from that which fills their heart. Aren't you shocked sometimes by what comes out of your mouth? Where does that come from? It resides in your heart. And, you know, a real good habit to try to develop is to find at least something good in another individual, no matter what they might be like. Now, he says bless. In the Greek, this is a present imperative. The idea is it's an ongoing lifestyle. It's a continual practice. It's not like, I have blessed those who are persecuting me. And I'm going to say one halfway kind of nice thing, squeeze it in there, and I've, I've done it. I have blessed those who are persecuting me. Actually, it is to be a way of life. And you need to understand that this is so very difficult because it goes against everything about us, right? We don't want to bless those who persecute us. What do we want to do? We want to run them over. We want their lives ruined. We want them to pay. We want them to find out who they're messing with, right? And so how do we do this? What in the world? Well, there's something that you and I must do if this is to be a reality. We must look at the pattern that is found in Jesus. This isn't something new that the Spirit of God had Paul write about. Really, this is just a reiteration of things that Jesus had been teaching his disciples. You remember he said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. In case you missed it, he said it twice. He said it in Luke chapter 6, and he also said it in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, this was Jesus. Jesus says, whoever hits you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn to him the other. Anybody done that, by the way? Or what about uh, if, if someone takes your coat, you're supposed to give them your shirt as well. And then Jesus, not only did he speak of these things, but if you want to see the supreme example of blessing those who persecute you, you must think of the cross. Because after they had basically beated, beat Jesus to a place where he is unrecognizable, then they nailed him to a cross. They thought they were putting to death just some sort of rogue individual in the empire. But rather it was Jesus, the one who was bearing the sins 
of mankind, of humanity, and bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And we'd like to think that Jesus uttered very few words while he was actually on the cross hanging there. But in actuality, that is not true. If we were to have ever gone back and be at the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus, we would see his mouth moving rather continuously. And what exactly was he saying? If you were able to get close enough, this is what you would hear. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Find that in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And it is in the imperfect tense, meaning that he said something over and over again in past time. Over and over, the ones who are mocking, the ones who are ridiculing, the ones who are running, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This particular event and this action and these words of Jesus were so impressionable to the early church that the very first person who ever died for their faith in Christ was a deacon by the name of Stephen. And as they were taking rocks, these people that were seeking to put him to death, and they were throwing him, throwing it at him, and his life was slowly slipping away. You know what he says? Acts chapter 7, verse 60. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where did he get that? He got it from Jesus. Peter understood these issues so very clearly. In the book of 1 Peter, he penned these words in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to what? Follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know what that is, don't you? That's Peter's version of Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. You see, we are called not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but we are called for a blessing. And you're like, I have a hard time loving the people that I'm supposed to be loving. Even the people that are pretty nice to me, right? True? I mean, it's, it's easy to love, like, people in our church. It's like so many cool people. I love bragging about you guys. But what about those who persecute you? How is that possible? I want you to know that it is impossible. You can't do it. So you may as well give up trying. It is impossible apart from the gospel. You see, the gospel actually makes this possible. When you and I love, not to earn someone's love or even earn God's favor, but in view of the love that God has for us, then we, through his love, can extend even a blessing to those who persecute us. And why would we do this? Why? Because we want even those who are persecuting us to know God's love and His forgiveness. We want to honor Christ and bring Him glory. And He is so greatly magnified when His saints are persecuted and yet still bless and even praise. We're called to imitate Christ. That's what we're called to do. You ever see the movie 42? Uh, it covers a, a significant event that takes place in American sports history. There was a major league team executive by the name of Branch Rickey. And he wants to cross that unspoken color line. He wants to bring the very first African-American baseball player into the major leagues. But, of course, the 
see the time in which it's taking place, the pressure, the social injustice, the racism that get, exists in America is intense. But he finds his guy, a fellow Christian like himself, who is willing to take the challenge. And, and finds it in a guy by the name of Jackie Robinson. Robinson knows that not only is he going to take extreme heat and face all sorts of insults and be provoked on a regular basis, but his family is going to face this kind of persecution. And so there's an exchange that takes place in the movie where Ro Jackie Robinson and Ricky are having this conversation. And Robinson says to Ricky, are you, wait, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back? Is that what you want? And Ricky says, no, 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 that's not what I want. I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. And he goes on to say, you see, we win only if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great ball player. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? And Robinson replies, you give me a uniform. You give me a number. And I will give you the guts. Friends, when we bless those who persecute us, we're not giving up or giving in. We are growing up and becoming mature. We are seeing the life of Christ being manifested in our lives in a pretty significant way. And friends, persecution has arrived. Christian persecution is the largest scale human rights issue in the world. Did you know that? You probably didn't. You know why? Because it is never discussed or hardly ever reported on. Yet, let me give you research as recent as March 2014. Gordon Conwell Seminary did a rather extensive study. They found that one in four of the world's Christians live in countries hostile to their faith. At any given moment, 100 to 200 million Christians around the world are being persecuted for their faith. Did you know that? The Center for the Global Study for, of Global Christianity reports that Get ready for this. 100,000 Christians die every year. Let me help you with the math. That is about 11 people die for their faith in Christ each hour. That means while we're at this worship service, on average, 11 Christians are going to make the ultimate sacrifice. Presently, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments for their beliefs, according to the U.S. State Department. This happens to be the biggest human rights issue in the world. And you and I can't avoid it. Think about radical Islamic jihadists. And they are targeting primarily Christians and others, and they are persecuting them. Not only are they making their lives uncomfortable, running them out of their houses and their homes and their businesses, as we've witnessed, in many cases, this leads to horrific death. And you, you and I, we can't get away from it. They even refer to themselves as Islamic, right? Whether or not our government can figure that out or not, they know who they are, and they know what they're about, and they've made it crystal clear they will put to death Christians. And they got an agenda, and they're aggressively going after it. Persecution, by the way, that impacts entire families. Did you know that? It, in, like, for men, like, they might be in their business, and all of a sudden they're arrested, and they're not even sure what's going on. No charges. Women are made to feel vulnerable, and they're beaten and raped. Kids are orphaned. You can't go to school anymore. 
You can't get a job that would be anything but some sort of menial labor. It's widespread. It's happening all over. And, you know, discrimination against Christians is increasingly existing even in America. I'll tell you this. If you come from a biblical perspective and you speak out against one of the sacred cows in our culture, you're going to face the heat. Remember a few years ago, Franklin Graham, he spoke out in support of the ban on gay marriage from a biblical perspective in North Carolina's 2012 election. What did we find out that resulted in? Our own government, the IRS, audited him, his ministry, Samaritan's Purse, and his father's ministry, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and made their lives miserable. Friends, Christians are being persecuted like even in academia. Many Christian scholars feel that they must hide their Christian faith in order to even get a job in academia or to keep it. And Christians are severely underrepresented in many campuses nationwide. And so what's happening, friends, is persecution is here. And you and I now cannot avoid it. Persecution can take various forms, from verbal abuse and social ostracism to violence resulting in death. Now, what is Paul writing this? Paul is writing this with Emperor Nero on the scene. Persecution is already a reality. But in a couple years after this letter goes out, it literally gets heated up. Nero will take Christians and turn them into torches for dinner parties. He will also acquire other Christians. He will incarcerate them and use them for fodder, for amphitheater and entertainment. Some are just going to be put to death. Many will follow a crucifixion. This is all heating up. What Paul is saying is this is what we are to do. We are to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. Now, you also need something, uh, notice something about the culture. The culture of the Greeks and the Romans did not honor humility. Humility was seen as a weakness. And yet when Jesus arrives at the scene, he says, I want you to have this kind of heart, this kind of heart of humility. In fact, I intend to produce it in you. Where you have a freedom from your sense of own importance, an honest concern for others, and a dependence upon God. If you want to see maturity in humility and what that looks like, go to the book of Philippians. And I know we all have a lot of favorite verses in the book of Philippians. But remember, like, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, That I may know him and the power of the resurrection. And we're like, yes, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But do you know what the same verse, the same sentence says right after that? And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Well, we don't put that on our Hallmark cards because what? We're not interested in the fellowship of the sufferings. We want victory. We want resurrection power, right? God wants us to be conformed to the image of the Son. And that's what it looks like. What do you do when you face persecution? Well, one, you want to pray for them, those who are persecuting you, and yourself. Pray for strength of faith, for physical and emotional well-being, and pray that the gospel will go forth and be lived out. One of the things you want to pray for yourself is that God guard my heart so that I will not be filled and embittered with hatred. Let me tell you something else you do. You pursue God's perspective on the situation. God, what is going on? When I came to church this morning, I was walking through the hall, 
and uh, one of the dear couples in our church, they, they told me, in 75 years, none of this will matter anymore. That is really a good perspective. Let me give you another thing. Protect yourself if you're facing persecution and others as you are able and look to preserve life. We're not just like, hey, I think I'll just try to find some persecution. I'll say some things and see if I can get beat up tomorrow, okay? It doesn't work that way. That's not what we're looking at. But if it comes and when it comes, we're ready. Give me a fourth. Present your lives as a blessing, even when we're hurting. We're going to bless. Speak well. We'll even pray for those who are persecuting us. Why? For the honor of Christ and that they might somehow see and know the love of Christ. And then finally, place the matter in God's hands. In fact, we'll be looking at this in the next few weeks. Beginning in verse 17 in Romans 12, all the way to chapter 13. You know that God has actually established government? And one of the purposes of government is to limit evil, and it is an avenger against those who practice evil? No, I know we live in a fallen system. We've got fallen people. We've got a fallen government. Yeah, those things are all true. But we are going to trust the Lord. And we are going to bless even those who persecute us. And we're going to leave it in the Lord's hands. John MacArthur writes of a very sobering situation that took place in his family. His, um, his nephew is working at a store. And some guy looking for drug money comes in, situation goes bad, and that guy actually shoots and kills MacArthur's nephew. And MacArthur's brother-in-law was determined not to just slip in to just bitterness and hatred for the rest of his life. In fact, what he would do is he actually prayed for this young man who had this drug problem, and he learned to love him to the degree that he actually went and visited the guy who killed his son to give him the greatest gift, the gift of the gospel, and presented to him while he's in prison. Friends, that's what we're called to do. We are called to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. Only possible through the grace of Christ. Right? Pretty sad and pretty sobering here. Well, look at verse 15. Rejoice. Look at that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. How do you love those who are happy? It says he's transitioning from just dealing with the outsiders to how do we rejoice with those who are happy? What do we do? And at first we're like, that's pretty easy. Not not anywhere near like verse 14, dealing with those who are persecuting. Like, yeah, we're pretty good with that. right? We're happy when people are happy. We like that. That, that works. That's easy, generally, right? However, what happens um, when someone's circumstances become far better than yours? Perhaps their accomplishments are much more notable, and what you've got and what you've done are like, eh, kind of barren and dull. How does your flesh deal with those scenarios? Probably not so well, right? Instead of rejoicing, what happens is we're tempted to start resenting them. So he says, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay, let's talk about that. So there's a baby that's born, but you've really wanted a child. Could you rejoice there? How about someone recovers from an illness, but you've still got yours? Or if one of your friends finally 
getting married. And you really wanted to be married. Or somebody gets a promotion. She gets it, and you don't. Could you rejoice with her? Someone gets a new home. And you're still stuck in that same old apartment, and you could barely pay the rent. Somebody gets a long-awaited vacation, and they graduate, but they fulfill some sort of goal. And you, it seems like you're stuck in the same old job, and nothing seems to really go right. Can you rejoice with those who rejoice? Let me give you some familiar verses that are, that are very helpful in doing this, especially when your flesh wants to feel sorry for yourself and do anything but rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not really look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How can we do this? You see, the love of Christ, when we really allow ourselves to experience and know the love of Christ, it allows us to sincerely share in the joy of others. Our hearts are free in Him, and that allows that kind of love and rejoicing to flow. So how do you love? How do you love the hostile? We'll even bless those who curse us. How do you love the happy? We will rejoice with them, genuinely, from the heart, not superficially, we'll share in it. Well, there's one other. How do you love those who are hurting? Look at verse 15. And weep with those who weep. One of the distinctly Christian virtues is that Christians, through the relationship they have with Christ, have the ability to enter into the disappointments and the hardships and the sorrows of other, others. We, we can experience sympathy and empathy. We can care and show concern. We can extend a heart of compassion. And let me tell you, this is a lot easier said than done, right? I mean, it requires sensitivity, real grace, the discipline to listen, to watch, to try to understand what's going on in, in a person's heart. And you need to know that we got hurting people everywhere. Even Jim Carrey, comedian, actor, he said if we were here at a dinner party of eight, if we were all to just genuinely act how we really felt, four of us would be weeping and full of sorrow. And that may not be too far off. How are we to respond to the hurting. The scripture says uh, we are to weep with those who weep. There's a college English professor, a woman by the name of Jess DeCourcy Hines, and she wrote an article for Newsweek. She writes of her experience of her dad who had a very painful bone cancer and eventually died, and how people would send sympathy cards, but most of them she just felt like were just, they were not helpful in the process. In fact, she sometimes would get personal notes, and she would say, like, these people were kind of like trying to just distract me. Like, they would say, like, are you applying to grad school? How's your teaching going? Are you still renovating the apartment? How are you keeping busy? And what Heinz really wanted, she writes, is for people to say, I am really sorry for your loss, to look her in the eye. She said, People just wanted me to, like, get fixed. She needed to move slowly through the process. She wasn't ready for some sort of chirping, cheery person just to show up. 
And listen to what she writes. Hines suggests some guidelines for the art of condolence. Simply begin with, I am so sorry for your loss. Then ask the crucial questions. How are you? How are you feeling? Don't tell someone how he or she should feel. And you shouldn't say, I can't imagine what you're going through. That really oftentimes comes across as, this is too hard for me and I really don't want to think about it. And then the article closes where Heinz says this. We need to be thinking about the behavior of elephants. You guys think a lot about elephants, do you? You know, listen to this. I found this fascinating. I did not know this. That's right. That's right. How do we support people in mourning? We can learn from the elephants. Elephants are known to grieve in groups. They loop trunks to support the bereaved. Like elephants, we should remain connected and open to mourners' sorrow longer than a two-hour memorial service. Grieving is a private, but it can be public. And we need to be open to mourners. We need to look each other in the eye and say, I am sorry. Let me tell you how you can do this well. Weep with those who weep. Listen. Just listen. Sometimes you have to say very little. It is really the ministry of presence. Look for an opportunity perhaps to read Scripture, which in many cases becomes kind of like a lifeline for just an agonizing soul. Like Psalm 23 or Psalm 62 or Psalm 77. Pray with them. They may not be in a position to pray. You just put your hand on their shoulder and you pray with them. It doesn't even have to be long. And you know, God knows a lot. The Father knows a lot about grieving. Because he too had a son who died. You see, it's humility that opens our heart to the hurt and the hopes of other people. In Israel, at the Temple Mount, they had this amazing way for those who were grieving to interface with those who were not There was one entrance into the Temple Mount. And so at the far south side, they had this one entrance, and everybody would go through this one entrance. You'd go up to the Temple Mount, worship, sacrifice, and everybody came down. Further to the east was the door there we came out. Everybody followed this pattern, except those who were grieving. They were supposed to go the opposite way, so that as they were grieving, they would always come in contact with others who could even just for a moment, as they passed by, share in their grief. Grief and sorrow and sadness and weeping, we we don't feel comfortable with this, do we? No. Nancy Guthrie, in her book, Holding On to Hope, Drawn by Suffering to the Heart of God, she talks of her experiences uh, where her and her husband had their daughter Hope for 199 days. And um, they knew that Hope would not live long. They held her through all of her seizures. They enjoyed what precious time they had while hope was on this earth. And then she writes this. The day after we buried hope, my husband said to me, you know, I think we expected our faith to make this hurt less, but it doesn't. Our faith gave us an incredible amount of strength and encouragement while we had hope, and we are comforted by the knowledge that she is in heaven. Our faith keeps us from being swallowed by despair. But I don't think it makes our loss hurt any less. It is only natural that people around me often ask, searchingly, how are you? And for much of the first year after Hope's death, my answer was, I am deeply and profoundly sad 
I've been blessed with many people who have been willing to share my sorrow to just be sad with me. Others, however, seem to want to rush me through my sadness. They want to fix me. But I lost someone I love dearly, and I'm sad. Ours is not a culture that is comfortable with sadness. Sadness is awkward. It is unsettling. It ebbs and flows and takes its own shape. It beckons to be shared. It comes out in tears, and we don't quite know what to do with those tears. Many people are afraid of bringing up my loss. They don't want to upset me. But my tears are the only way I have to release the deep sorrow I feel. I tell people, don't worry about crying in front of me, and don't be afraid that you'll make me cry. And listen to this. Your tears tell me, and my tears tell you, that you've touched me in a place that is meaningful to me, and I will never forget your willingness to share my grief. Friends, that's what the church is to be. We are to be a body of believers, a community where true healing, emotional, spiritual, can take place. That we are deeper people, that we are done with superficiality, and we are on to sincerity in Christ. And we actually care from the heart. That's what we are called to do. It's like the old Swedish proverb says, shared joy is a double joy, and shared sorrow is half a sorrow. So how in the world do we do this? We'll look at verse 16. The heart that expresses this kind of love comes only through humility. He says this, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't be self-seeking with pride. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. All of this is a way to describe the key to hearts. Humility. I'm going to tell you there are two major reasons why we're not real good at these verses. Why we'll hide behind masks. One is pride. Pride pride is like a poison to love. You need to know that. You need to be real smart, real gifted, got a lot of talent. But pride prevents you from stooping into the life of another. Pride will keep you from reaching out, from asking for help. Pride will keep you from being vulnerable, which is essential to expressing and demonstrating humility. And let me give you another reason why we're not so great on this, why these verses make us feel uncomfortable. Fear. Fear is no less deadly to love. We are fear that we might risk losing or that we will face rejection. And Pride and fear, it's like one of our great values is that we don't like awkward moments, right? We don't like to feel like we're in the heat of the situation, so we avoid them. And if you allow pride and fear to run your life, you are going to stunt your growth as a Christian. God wants to bring us to a place where we're experiencing this maturity of relationship with Christ. We can bless those who persecute us. We can rejoice with the rejoicing. We can weep with the weeping. How can we possibly do this? How can we have this kind of love and this kind of humility? May I remind you of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You present your life, your body, as a living and holy sacrifice. Transform. Unified with Christ. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when we do, we can serve people like Christ does. Our 
When we've got humility, it opens our eyes so we can see people as they really are. It opens our hearts so that we can serve people, even when it's difficult. It opens our hands to help. It opens our mouths so that we can speak grace and truth. It opens our future to be more like Christ, and it opens up our lives to a life of love. You know what God says? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the, anybody happen to know? It's written three times. I heard it. Humble. He gives grace to the humble. So as we proceed from these in these upcoming days, let's do this. Let's put on the lenses of humility. Let's put on the compassion and the care of Christ, following the Spirit's leading, and we can listen Learn and love. You see, humility is at the heart of love because it's at the essence of the heart of Christ. There's a guy by the name of Father Damien. Some of you have heard of this guy. He's rather famous because of his just amazing willingness to serve lepers. In March 19th, 1864, Father Damien shows up in Hawaii, specifically on the island of Molokai, where he lives in a leper's colony called Kalawa'u. And he spends 16 years of his life with these lepers. And he learns their language, he bandages their wounds, he embraces their bodies, uh, he started a school and another one, he, he actually starts his choir, he builds with his own hands over 2,000 um, coffins so that when these lepers die, they can be buried with dignity. And it was said that Kalawalu became a place to live rather than a place to die because this guy offered some hope. Now, this Father Damien guy, he was not careful. Like he would be like, he would share food and eat poi out of the same bowl. He'd share his pipe. He would bandage wounds, and, and sometimes he didn't actually even wash his hands afterwards. And then the day came where he began a message, a sermon, and he said this, We lepers, so much so that he cared for these people that he entered into all of their life. And I want you to know something. He died in that leper colony at the age of 49, after 16 years of just ministering the presence of Christ. You see, he touched lives, and because he touched lives, he was able to touch hearts. And so was me. So was we. But the only way that will ever happen is if we have humility. You see, humility is the key that enables us to love people like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a powerful passage. And to think that you are calling us to this kind of love and this kind of humility. Lord, you know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, we ask for your empowerment and perspective, your strength and peace of heart. And Father, for someone who has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus, but today they have tasted and have seen the goodness of the Lord. That they just simply pray with me and say, Father, I turn from sin and myself, and I trust Jesus for life and forgiveness. And God, would you lead us in the everlasting way that we might share and show the love of Christ for your glory as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.